Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, everybody, Shabbat Shalom. In our last lesson, this is about where we stopped. Uh, we've been examining Psalm 27, 5 through 6, as it pertains to the footsteps of Messiah. We've been using the Song of Songs as a, a working text. We've also been taking a glance at the weekly Torah portion to see how can this augment what we're reading about the footsteps of Messiah. Now, some people they might call it the tribulation. Some people might call it the birth pangs of Messiah. In some instances, it's the negative aspect of this seven-year period that's emphasized. But we prefer to call it the footsteps of Messiah. This, uh, this grows out of it being called um, a time that says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, announcing peace proclaiming words of happiness. There's also in, in Nahum, it says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Perform your vows, which are performed at the feast. It says, for the wicked one will no more pass through you. He's utterly cut off. So if we want to utterly cut off the wicked one, we're being pointed back to the feasts themselves, that there's going to be something in the observance of the feasts or the Moedim, also called the Chagim, that's going to be part of this process of cutting off the wicked one. So yes, tribulation, but on the other hand, footsteps of Messiah and good news coming on the mountains, the mountains represent the nations. So it's just like, and you all, you all know these people and it's a certain personality type. When somebody's telling you a story about something that happened to them, if, if it's something that could be perceived as negative, they will become indignant and it's, you know, I can't believe they did such and such, and this is so horrible, and this is so deficient, and I can't believe, you know. But another person may have had exactly the same experience, and they will tell the story too, except they don't take themselves too seriously. Somehow, it can turn into a very entertaining and funny story about this horrible, no good, very bad day. And by the time they get done telling you about the horrible, no good, very bad day, you're just rolling on the floor in stitches because they have completely transformed the negativity into something joyous, something that, that makes you smile and brings a laugh. And so this is, in a sense, what we're doing with the tribulation, we can look at the scriptures and say, yes, yeah, scripture says it's a day of trouble. But we can also look at the scriptures and say, hey, wait a minute, these are the footsteps of Messiah on the mountains, bringing the good news, the feasts. It's He's coming back for his own. That's how we can transform this. This is how we can have joy when all around us, the world is, is seeing the bitterness of tribulation. This designed to bring them to repentance, by the way. If we're okay with repenting, then there's no problem, of course, with the tribulation. Will it be uncomfortable? Absolutely. But will it be detrimental? Shouldn't be. It should actually be perfecting and refining us. So as we continue with the footsteps, this lesson, we're going to call it the sharp sickle. 
because we want to look at Revelation 14. And if you can have Revelation 14, that chapter open in front of you to kind of scan through it, because there's no way we can read through the whole chapter in a little one hour uh, teaching. But you can always go back to that chapter. I'll give you some highlights. I'll give you some bullet points. And then you can go back and you can reread it in your own time. We'll look at a few key verses because I do want you to see the, the parallels between the sickle and the reaping and Revelation 14. And then how it pertains to this very period we're in right now where we're counting the seven perfect weeks from the first fruits of the barley until the first fruits of the wheat at Shavuot or Feast of Pentecost, if you know it that way, which commemorates the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. So in our last lesson, we looked at Psalm 27, 5 and 6. And this, of course, we're going to put in the good news column of the footsteps of Messiah. It says, for on the day of trouble, okay, no doubt there's tribulation here. On the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. He will hide me in the secret place of his tent. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. So here's the contrast. It's on a day of trouble. Trouble's going on. But he says, in this particular day, he is going to lift me up. He's going to conceal me in his tabernacle, in his tent. Where do we really first see a tent that is a refuge for Israel? It's in the Mishkan. It's in the Ohel Moed, uh, in the wilderness, the tent of meeting, uh, where your daily sacrifices will be held there, but also um, it's going to be the focal point of the feasts. And so where are you hidden in the day of trouble? He's going to hide you in that tent of meeting. It's the appointed times will become your refuge in a day of trouble. That's why he's so specific about them being perpetual throughout your generations so that you will never forget that he has designed the appointed times to be your refuge on the day of trouble. And so at the same time, the world is experiencing tribulation. You are being lifted up on a rock. And yes, your enemies are around you. But at the very same time, you're offering sacrifices in that tent with shouts of joy. You're singing those praises of the feasts. So that's pretty cool. Just think of yourself as being concealed in the cloud. And remember the, the cloud, there were different clouds in the wilderness. There was one that would lead them around. But there was also a cloud in the holy place, the holy of holies. There was going to be a cloud of incense. This, this cloud would also lift up and it would envelop the entire encampment. You know, like Paul says, we were all under the cloud. He's talking about the cloud that enveloped the entire nation as they traveled in the wilderness. So this seems to be a revisitation of that, that wilderness experience where we're not still in Egypt, but we're not quite yet in, in the promised land. Right? There's, there's still some trouble going on around us. But what I wanted to point out is from the Hebrew text. Yes, Psalm 27, 5 and 6, it's encouraging us in a day of trouble that there will be a, a rescue, that we will be in this tent of meeting. But there's a, an anomaly in the Hebrew uh, wording 
Now think of the difficulty in prophecy if you're prophesying about something very specific, but that nation doesn't even exist yet. You ever think how difficult that would be? But nevertheless, there's a way of doing it. And that way of doing it is by simply embedding maybe the name of that kingdom in Hebrew wordplay, which is exactly what happens in Psalm 27, 5, and 6. There's a wordplay. It means what it means, but there's an extra level you can hear if you read it out loud. So when he says, he sets me up on a rock, up there is Yeromamani. Yeromamani. And I'm going to say it slow until you hear the, the name of the kingdom. Yeromamani. He sets me up on a rock and will lift. Lift is Yarum. Do you hear the name of the kingdom yet? Yarum. You're hearing Rome because it's in future tense. Both of these are in a future tense. So even at a time when the Roman kingdom ruled the world, the prophecy is that we will be lifted up and set on a rock and our heads will be lifted up above our enemies. You say, okay, like the kingdom of Rome 2000 years ago? Not exactly. Because if we look at the image of the beast, golden head, uh, silver upper torso, um, the bronze of the lower part, and then, of course, the iron legs. If you look at the legs, Rome was the iron legs. If you look at the feet of the image of the beast, the, the clay and the iron are mixed. And the, then, of course, you've got uh, ten toes, five toes apiece, right? So that tells you that Rome is still around, it never went away. It's simply manifesting itself. Again, the, the feet are standing on the earth. That's why it's so significant that when Yeshua returns, he will set his feet on the Mount of Olives. Having your feet on something implies dominion. So Rome still has dominion over the world. How? It's not a kingdom anymore. What Rome handed down to the world was all its systems. Everything we do, you can see the reflection of Rome, which kind of siphoned it from Greece, which siphoned it from Persia, Medea, which siphoned it from Babylon. So you have Babylon in the book of Revelation, again, pops right back up because it's the head of the beast. But you also have the, the scarlet beast, Right. So the scarlet beast is still Rome hanging around. And it's infected all our systems, medicine, economics, politics. I mean, in the United States, we still have a Senate. Right. Uh, we still go to a stadium. We still have miles. I know the rest of the world's on kilometers, but we still have miles. Right. So these things, even the, the romantic languages still have Latin. Uh, embedded within them. So in the wordplay, what do we hear? Even though these Roman systems will still be around during the footsteps of Messiah, nevertheless, we will be lifted up above Rome at that time. And even though, of course, 2,000 years ago, more or less, this red beast of Rome destroyed the daily sacrifices, it cannot stop 
the sacrifices of praise in the highest place. Rome might be high, lifted up. That's what Rome means. That's why you keep seeing that uh, root show up in the, the Hebrew text. It means high and lifted up. Well, Rome might have been high and lifted up, and it might still be high and lifted up among the kingdoms of the earth. Nevertheless, no matter how high they go, just like the Tower of Babel, no matter how high you go, he can descend and cause the greatest confusion among those systems. And we see that happening today, whether you're looking at the commercial system, political system, uh, the university system, the medical system, all those things are intertwined. The agricultural system, the red beast may have infected everything, but that very infection has now become a source of chaos. And so this is the, the red beast is going to be brought down, but the elect will be lifted up, right? So that helps us a little bit. Understanding how something that's bad for the rest of the world can be the hope of redemption for the elect. So let's, let's go back to our working text in Song of Songs 217. I did want to review this aspect of Rome because in next week's live stream, we're going to pay a little more attention to the red beast of Rome and what the times of the Gentiles are and, and connect those two things, right? So here's our working text from Song of Songs 217. Until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee, turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Beter, the mountains of Beter. There's kind of an oddity because you're probably not really familiar with the mountains of Beter. They're not famous for anything except for one thing. There was a massacre. There was a slaughter of the Jews that took place on the mountains of Beter. So we'll, we'll take a quick look at that. It was the result of following a false messiah. And the language that is used to describe this massacre, which is going to be blood up to the horse's bridles, that's going to be exactly what John prophesies at this end time, at the, you know, the time of the footsteps of Messiah, the last days. And this shows us how prophecy can be telescoped out. This, we have this prophecy, the mountains of Beter, going to be fulfilled in one sense at a historical time period when many Jews followed after a false messiah. There were consequences to that. Well, as we get over into the book of Revelation, we're going to see a repeat. It's going to hit the button again on this prophecy. And again, we're going to see blood up to the horse's bridles because there are going to be many people who will follow a false messiah and deceiving signs and wonders. So in general, as we're looking at this text, the mountains are thought to symbolize the powerful kingdoms that have sub subdued Israel over the ages, specifically the rabbis say Rome, because remember the, the image of the beast, even though it's different kingdoms and one human being is still the image of one human being, right? So Rome was the, the largest of those kingdoms. It was the most powerful of those kingdoms. And because it was the last of those great kingdoms, its feet are still mingled with the governments of the earth. So uh, again, just a, a brief history of Beter, 
Okay, you might hear it as betar, beter. The spelling is going to be what kind of binds it together. We know historically that this was the, the last, I wouldn't say the last because we, we still had another holdout, but in terms of just destroying the rebellion of the Jews against the Romans, the last rebellion was squashed right here in Betar. And you've heard of Bar Kokhba, who was a false messiah, and mistakenly, many Jews followed after him and thought that uh, he would be the one to defeat Rome. And they were mistaken. They followed a false messiah. And so when the, the Romans massacred them, it destroyed Jewish self-governance for nearly 2,000 years. It was only in 48 that they were able to return and restart that process. And the historian who witnessed it, there was one person left alive at the end who recorded what happened. And he wrote very specifically that the blood ran to the Romans' horses' noses. Now, that's not a random detail, guys. This is a detail we've already read about in scriptures. So we're reading here that this was a historical event that was um, that the Jews believe prophesied back in Song of Songs 217. But then we also know that this prophecy pops up again in the book of Revelation. And so when this beloved turns on the mountains of Betar, the idea is it's to take vengeance upon the massacre of the Jews that occurred at Betar. You say, well, they followed a false messiah. Didn't they deserve it? I don't think so. We've all made mistakes before. Hopefully we had a chance to repent before the worst happened. At this point, maybe they finally realized he was a false messiah because he began to do some things that told them, oh, maybe he's not exactly who we thought he was. He, he, he murdered his own uncle for nothing. He misunderstood something he saw or heard and slaughtered his own uncle. And they said, wait a minute, this couldn't be the messiah. So we are all susceptible to be mistaken about something so important as the Messiah. We have all misunderstood prophecies before. We have all misconstrued prophecies before. And so we have to be careful how we cast these stones. But this is this history for us is a great guide to say, hey, wait a minute. This thing about don't follow false messiahs, that's serious. And therefore, we need to find out the traits and the characteristics of Messiah Yeshua to make sure we are never deceived as to thinking, well, maybe Messiah returned and that wasn't him at all. And that's like Yeshua said, don't run here and there looking for me. He says the kingdom is within you already. You're in the kingdom already. You should already be doing the things to make you present in the kingdom without you having to run to and fro all over the earth looking for a Messiah. He's not in a closet. <laughs> He's not here. He's not there. He's with you. So here's something. I, this, again, I said, if you're new to the, the feasts, don't panic right here. I just want to pull out some symbolism from the Talmud, which is good in that often it, it'll give us history that will help us understand what's going on in scripture. 
And again, because we're looking at a time period when many followed a false messiah, we're reading about the consequences of that. Well, as it turns out, it might appear to be very similar to what John's prophesying in Revelation. It's going to reinforce, I think, what John is telling us. And this is very graphic. You know, if you've got children in the room, <laughs> you know, you, you may not want them to hear this depending upon the age because it's a graphic description of what the Romans did to the Jews in Betar. So the one who recorded it said the brains of 300 children were found upon one stone, along with 300 baskets of what remained of phylacteries. And of course, phylacteries, they're to fill in the little boxes that Jewish men wear on their forehead and on their arm. He says, this was found in Betar. Now think of what we just read in Psalm 27 about being lifted up on a stone in a day of trouble. Now I want you to see the, the irony that the writer seems to be doing intentionally. And, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about, are you supposed to take what you're reading literally? Don't yet. Okay, don't take this literally yet. Let's put it right now in the category of literary symbolism that maybe the writer is trying to get you to recall something you already know or should know if you're a student of scripture. And therefore he is using the language in such a way that you're telling yourself the story, but the details themselves may not be precise. They may be symbolic. So we have 300 children up on one stone, the brains of 300 children upon one stone. Psalm 27, he will lift me up upon the rock in the day of trouble. These children were lifted up, right? Okay, keep thinking symbolism and parallelism right here. But 300 baskets of what remained of the tefillin, these were found in Betar. 300 baskets is a significant number because remember, Gideon, his army numbered, 300, 300, three is a number of resurrection. And of those 300, he made three divisions of a hundred each out of them. Okay, so you're getting an intensity of the number three, looking for resurrection. It says each and every one of which had the capacity to hold three seahs, three seahs. Okay, we're going to look at why are three seahs important. If you should come to take all of them into account, you would find that they amounted to 300 measures. Right? The writer here keeps using intensives of three. 500 schools were in Betar. Well, the smallest of them wasn't less than 300 children, 300 children. They used to say, if the enemy should ever come upon us with these basically with their uh, pens, we would call them pens, that they wrote the Torah with and that, you know, they would use these fine pointed, I don't know, I can't think of the word right now, but anyway, the styli, they could put the little vowel pointings on particular letters, right? They could make the little crowns or whatever. Uh, he says, if the enemy should ever come upon us, but these little writing implements, will go forth and stab them. In other words, these would be the instruments, writing instruments you would use to do the dots and the, the jots and the tittles, the jots and the tittles, the minutia, right? 
will go forth and stab them with those. But he points out, but since iniquity had caused their fall, in other words, since they had followed a false messiah, the enemy came in and wrapped up each and every child in his own book and burnt them together, and no one remained except me. Okay, this is the guy that reports the blood up to the Roman horse's noses. So we have to look at this as a cryptic message. And, and you have to remember, too, that often Jewish literature was, literature was written in such a way so as not to antagonize whoever was the, the prevailing force at the time, right? You don't want to antagonize the Romans. Whatever nation that you're in, you don't want to, especially if you're in Spain or Portugal during the Inquisition, you don't want to antagonize the ruling powers. So often you'll find this literature is written cryptically. And it was never written with the expectation that you would pull it up on the internet, that you would try to read it in isolation from its teaching methods, from the symbolic language, from its formulaic structure, and having a personal teacher to guide you through it. In fact, in, in one of the tractates, the Avot, were caution, make a teacher for yourself. Don't try to figure this out for yourself. So that's kind of the caution for using the, the Mishnah or the Talmud. Don't think you can pull it up on the internet and make sense out of it all by yourself. All right. There's, there's a lot. To, you, you need to take a class to even learn how to read it because of the structure of it to keep you on track. So just keep that in mind. This is why we're not going to consider those numbers that were recorded, the literal history. But we do want to consider it as symbolic history, symbolic language, because of the repetition of the threes. And we want to compare it to another passage of the Mishnah, which is going to record for us the practice of reaping the barley sheaves during temple times. If we can understand that, then maybe we can understand what's going on in Revelation 14. Again, why would we be concerned about what happened to a, a city full of people who were slaughtered for following a false messiah? Well, because the same things show up in Revelation, right? That's why we're concerned with it. What can we learn from it? So we're going to take these historical practices as it concerns the temple. And we're gonna take that temple practice and we want to reread Revelation 14, which describes how the earth is reaped because it makes sense if our template is the reaping of the barley for the temple and the reaping of the wheat for the temple, then it may be that he didn't invent something new in Revelation 14. It may be that we're simply reading the, the fulfillment of things that we've already read, okay? Now, there's, there's two things we want to keep in the back of our minds. I know we've studied them in past lessons. We've alluded to them because they had to do with the Passover season. So we knew that there were prophecies embedded in these two stories that would roll into play eventually again. Wow, that was a pun, and I wasn't even trying. Remember the barley bread that rolled into the Midianite camp? And it upended the Midianite tents. And Gideon hears the enemy recount this vision, this dream. And he says, okay, this is the sign that we'll have the victory. Because the barley bread rolled into the tent 
and it turned over the Midianite tent. Remember, in a day of trouble, we're going to be lifted up, right? He's going. To, we're going to be concealed in his tent, but the Midianite tent going to be upended. So the first fruits of the barley occurs in the Passover week. It's part of Pesach. Passover unleavened bread and the first fruits of the barley, they're all in a, in a nice bundle. And we're interested in this, in this first fruits of the barley, because we know that it was barley that portended that Gideon would have a victory over Midian and over Amalek. And we're always told in scripture, remember Amalek, don't forget, because there's prophecies embedded in the interactions with Amalek and Midian that will help you understand what you're reading in Revelation. So with the idea that, yes, Yeshua says that somehow the days are going to be shortened for the elect's sake. If, if something's going to hurry, just like in Revelation, it says, even so, come quickly, Lord Yeshua. What does he say? Behold, I come quickly. Okay, if he's coming quickly, that means he's coming faster than originally scheduled. That's what hurrying does. Now, whether it's literal hurrying or whether it's a perception of hurrying, I don't know. I can't answer that question. But we still have this, this idea of shortening the days, hurrying the days that we know is attached to all this prophetic end time activity. So we want to go back to, to Passover. Let's go back to the Passover week. Let's go back to the first fruits of the barley. Because if they're, they're reaping in Revelation 14, then let's go back and find out how they reaped in temple times. Because the temple shows up in Revelation, right? The altar and the temple, of course, they're the heavenly ones, but they show up again. But if you understand that the heavenly temple, the heavenly altar is actually the source of everything that was supposed to occur on the earthly temple and altar, and that when the temple was destroyed, when Rome destroyed that temple, it, it kind of, in a sense, cut that umbilical cord between the heavenly temple and the earthly temple. And therefore, the presence of Adonai has been less manifest. And, you know, the rabbis say if the, the kingdoms of the world had understood what they did to themselves when they destroyed the temple, they would be repenting in sackcloth and ashes. Because what happened on that altar was a way of bringing down that blessing upon the whole earth from the heavenly altar, from the heavenly temple. Anyway, we don't want to chase that rabbit too far. But here's what the rabbis say. And uh, this is from Kodashim, volume 1b, Midachot 10. Here's how they did it in temple times. It says, both on Shabbat and during the week, the Omer offering would come from three seah of reaped barley. Now we get why maybe the writer of the history of the destruction of Betar is describing things in a, in a measure of three seah. He's saying these people were reaped, not in a good way, but these people were reaped, comparing them again to the barley harvest. So the Omer offering would come from three seah of reaped barley. Both on Shabbat and during the week, it was reaped by three people with three baskets and three sickles. Now, that should, again, remind you of what the historian said about the destruction of Betar. 
At that point in history, the beloved did not turn on the mountain of Betar. The destruction was executed upon the vineyard, the vineyard being Israel. But there will come a time, according to the prophecy, that the beloved will turn on the mountains of Betar. He will turn and we will hear his footsteps, bringing the good news, lifting us up on the rock, hiding us in the tent in the day of trouble. So they go on and they say the mitzvah, the commandment of the Omer, is to bring the barley reaped for the meal offering from fields proximate to Jerusalem. If the barley did not ripen in fields proximate to Jerusalem, one brings it from any place. But the preference, the first choice, and second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth choices, were going to be a field closest to Jerusalem or closest to the temple. This is important because you don't want to wander around when there's a commandment to fulfill. And the this is called that this concept is called Ein Ma'avirin Al Hamitzvot. Right? Ein Ma'avirin Al Hamitzvot. And that means we do not pass over a mitzvah. You say, I still don't understand what you're saying. What do you mean? Don't pass over a mitzvah. It means that you hurry to perform a commandment that you know to to perform. If you know to do it, you do it as quickly as you possibly can. Now, it's not like Adam and Eve where they kind of lost a handle on it and they should have waited until the cool of the evening to ask and clarify. Instead, they acted and they acted wrongly. But if you know to do something, and in this case, they know they are to reap the three seah of the barley for this feast. So they perform it as quickly as they possibly can. They don't let the opportunity pass. The idea is if you don't do something when you should do it, then you run the risk of becoming distracted, of the adversary attacking before you can complete it. And then the time for completion has passed and you didn't perform that that deed within its time period. So they say, This would be the norm. You find a field closest to Jerusalem, and that's where you reap the barley. You're you're hurrying the commandment, in other words. Just like Yeshua is going to hurry the time for the sake of the elect. You are going to hurry the commandment. Now, if it's a strange year and it's atypical and the barley close to the temple doesn't ripen, then you could go out and find it in another place in the land itself. But um, because of obedient speed, and so that what you reap will still be very green and moist, not dried out from the journey, you try to do it closest to the temple. And think of Moses. We're told in scripture, um, you know, where it says his eye had not dimmed. If you read it in Hebrew, it says his moisture never diminished. And then when he sings his song, The song of Moses, it says, let my words fall like dew on thirsty grass or thirsty vegetation. So the song of Moses was supposed to fall on wet ears, kind of, (laughs) we might say that. It's falling in the hearing of Israel. And this is the kind of barley 
that was the most desirable to reap, that which was still moist and green and not all dried out because they didn't have to carry it such a long way. So if, if the first fruits are being sought, then the implication there is that the hearers of the word are being sought. And hearing and Hebrew means doing. Those who hear and do, they are sought to be the first fruits because these are those who will hurry to obey the commandments. Now, here in just a second, I'm going to read to you the process that the reapers went through. Right? But just again, in the back of your mind, hold in there that the history that we know about the blood going up to the Roman horses' bridles, those specific numbers the writer records, that they now have that context because of the prophecy in Song of Songs 2.17, where the beloved will turn on the mountains of Betar. We reap three seahs for the omer of first fruits of the barley. If we compare that to the history of Betar, Three seahs were reaped by the red beast of Rome because of the iniquity and following a false messiah. We had the baskets, which symbolize people. And what was in those baskets? They held tefillin or phylacteries. The, the tefillin are also, they're a contronym. They can be their own opposite. And if you're not familiar with what I'm saying, I'd like for you to go back in our, in our videos and find one that's entitled, uh, What's Inside That Box? 666 and the Grace We Missed. Because it will explain to you the two sides of the tefillin, the phylacteries. One side is going to be a normal Hebrew letter sheen, which stands for El Shaddai. And it's made of three prongs joined at the bottom. It's supposed to look like fire or teeth, because the tongue is a fire, right? Um, but on the other side, you're going to have a, a strange letter sheet. It's going to have four prongs instead of three. So the three prongs, they represent the letter of the Torah. The four prongs represent the spirit of the Torah. You put the four with the three, and you have seven. You have a seven-branched menorah made out of these two sheens. So you have the letter and the spirit of the Torah. In other words, you have the commandments with the power of the Holy Spirit. But this is in contrast to those who would have the mark of the beast on their hand and their forehead. They would not have the commandments with the spirit. They would follow after the beast. And barley is generally considered to be a food for animals. It's, it's a food for the beast, as opposed to wheat, which is considered human food. So the, as we look at these commentaries about the, the counting of the Omer, from the first fruits of the barley until Shabuot, after the perfect sevens, they say we're not just counting the days from the Exodus until the day we were given the Torah at Shabuot. Rather, these are meant to be days of refinement. Thus, we're commanded to start counting and refining ourselves from when the offering consisting of the barley was brought. Remember, it's for the beast. For at the onset of the spiritual journey, it says we are coarse, 
just like barley bread and similar to an animal that might be make it worth going back and reading the the loaves and the fishes right what's going on with this barley remember barley is coarse and it 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 symbolizes the animal or the animal food but by the end of our spiritual journey they say we have refined ourselves and we're ready to bring an offering consisting of wheat the food staple of mankind and this is something we've been looking at in our online classes because the fall feasts, we tend to think of those as repentance and the, you know, entering into the cloud, the resurrection and so forth. But in the tradition, you know, you've got bookends. You've got the spring feast defined by Passover. You've got the fall feast pretty much defined by Sukkot. But in comparing those, they say that the elect or the righteous, because remember Yeshua says these days are going to be shortened for the sake of the elect, that the righteous, they start their journey at Pesach. They, they kind of go through that gate. They go through that door. They continue their journey of perfect sevens. They start refining themselves at Pesach. Because remember, they took a lot of Egypt out of Egypt with them. Ezekiel 20 tells us how far into idolatry they had descended. That blood on the doorpost was good faith. Just save me from death. But then I'm going to learn how to be a disciple. I'm going to learn how to do what your word says, how to do and hear. So you start that journey of perfect sevens. You arrive at Shavuot. And at that point, you're supposed to be the wheat. You're no longer beast fodder. You have refined yourselves. And then from then on, it is said that that's when you are sealed over at Mount Sinai. You are sealed over when you make a covenant with him. And then it's just a matter of continuing on that path until you reach the fall feast. And so they say that the fall feasts are more for the lukewarm. It's for the people who have on the path, off the path, on the path, off the path, on the path, off the path. When it's convenient, they're on the path. When it's inconvenient, they're going to be off the path. So they say this emphasis on repentance at the Feast of Trumpets to Yom HaKippurim, this emphasis is for the sake of those who are lukewarm and who are in danger of being vomited out because the elect are already sealed at that time. Do you still go through the motions? Yes, you do, right? There's always something you can find. Trust me. <laughs> Take it from me. <laughs> so here's the process. Um, again, taking us back to temple times. And this is from Menachot uh, Tin. So they say emissaries of the court would emerge on the eve of the festival of Passover. So this is going to be the evening before Passover, not the evening of Passover when you would eat the lamb. They're not going to do the two things on the same night. So they're going to do it the night before. Really makes you think about what's going on with Yeshua and his disciples if, if he died. At the time of the slaying of the Passover lamb, then the meal that they shared would have fallen during this time period where the, the barley sheaves were uh, bound and then cut. All right. So uh, the court would emerge on the eve of the festival of Passover and fashion the stalks of barley into sheaves while the stalks were still attached to the ground. They're still living at this point. 
This goes back to what we studied about the little flocks that the rabbis predicted would form during the footsteps of Messiah. The elect out in there in the, the wilderness of the peoples, that they would, the, the same thing would kind of happen to them. They would be formed into little flocks, or there would be like these living stalks of barley. There's going to be a cord bound around them so that as a stock, kind of as a congregation, they're all still attached to the ground together. So when the reaper comes through, he's going to reap that sheaf instead of taking one little piece of grass at a time to get the barley, he's going to get a whole sheaf of barley at one time. It's, and this looks like maybe the way Messiah is doing it. He's reaping people in sheaves. This is something we read every Shabbat. We read Shir uh, HaMalot, you know, he who goes out weeping on his way, bearing a bag of seed will return. And what does he have? He has a sheaves with him okay he's coming back with joy with the sheaves we're the sheaves and how has he reaped us not one at a time he has reaped us in 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 stocks in sheaves in little flocks says the residents of all the towns adjacent to the site of the harvest imagine how excited you would be if you live close to this they would assemble there so that it would be harvested with great fanfare once it grew dark it had to be dark. It had to be in the first watch of the night. And remember later, Yeshua says, referring to the, the return of the Son of Man, he says, if he comes in the second watch, even the third, be ready, be alert. He doesn't mention the first watch of the night. Why not? We'll get to that eventually. But notice right here, this setting apart is occurring in the first watch. And in the first watch, incidentally, this is when it's highly recommended that you say the evening Shema, the greatest commandment, Hero Israel, the first watch of the night. So once it grew dark, the court emissary says to those assembled, Did the sun set? The assembly says in response, Yes. The emissary repeats, Did the sun set? They say again, Yes, we've got two witnesses here, right? The court emissary next says to those assembled, shall I reap the sheaves with this sickle? The assembly says in response, yes. The emissary repeats, with this sickle. The assembly says, yes. The court emissary then says to those assembled, shall I place the gathered sheaves in this basket? The assembly says in response, yes. The emissary repeats, in this basket. The assembly says, yes. And then it's got a little blurb in there about if the 16th of Nisan occurs on Shabbat and so forth. Um, But he finally gets to the last question. He says, shall I cut the sheaves on this Shabbat? The response, yes. On this Shabbat, yes. And finally, shall I reap the sheaves? And they say to him in response, not yes. They say to him in response, reap. The emissary repeats, shall I cut or shall I reap the sheaves? And they say to him, reap, cut. 
So it says the emissary asks three times with regard to each and every matter. And the assembly says to him, yes, yes, yes. Right? Which one was different? Shall I reap? Shall I reap? They say, reap. It's different. So now we've got some more hints as to how the footsteps of Messiah might be hurried. Because we have this reference point of a field of barley. We know, first of all, the field of barley was selected so that the offering could be hurried in its performance. We know that in the rabbinic commentary, as it's describing this process, they explain to us why the answer is different on the last question. When he says, shall I reap? And they say, reap instead of yes. They say this indicated to the temple reapers that he should begin immediately. He should hurry. In other words, don't dilly-dally around. It's the first watch of the night. We need to get this done in the first watch of the night. So it means when they say reap instead of yes, they say it means hurry up, hurry the time. And then because this is associated with Pesach and unleavened bread, remember you remove all the chametz or the leaven from your home for the days of unleavened bread. Chametz also means sour. In fact, if you order pickles on your sandwich in Israel, you order chamutzim. These are things that go sour. And they say, this is a mitzvah. This is a commandment left undone. And so the mitzvah, if you hurry, becomes matzah. It becomes unleavened bread. You left Egypt in a hurry. It didn't have a chance to rise. They performed the commandment quickly. When you perform a commandment quickly, just like the reaping of the sheeps, then your matzah becomes a mitzvah that you hurried. And if we hurry to perform a mitzvah, I'm pretty sure he's going to hurry to meet us there. We don't let the commandment go sour because we put it off. You know, sometimes we go in that mode where we never do today what we could put off till tomorrow. All right, that's a personality type, I guess. But when it comes to a commandment, it's not a personality you want to have. When it comes to a commandment, don't let it go sour. Do it as quickly as possible so that there is no rising of sourness, so that your misfa becomes matzah. In fact, if you spell it out in Hebrew, the plural mitzvot, right? It's matzot. It's unleavened bread. Pretty cool, huh? So, We said we were going to go to Revelation 14. This is going to be of interest because of the reapers, because of the the sharp sickle, that now we have a context of the temple reapers hurrying to fulfill the commandment in the first watch of the night. We also have a historical context, because again, if, if John is describing to us blood up to the horse's bridles. And this is going to be associated with the footsteps of Messiah that are predicted with on the mountains of Betar and the Song of Songs. Then it also helps us to understand again, the historical incident where the people followed a false Messiah on the mountains of Betar 
and they were massacred and there was blood up to the, the Roman horse's noses. So the lesson from that is don't follow a false Messiah. Know the nature of your Messiah. Don't be deceived by lying signs and wonders. Don't run hither and thither looking for him. You work on the kingdom that is within you. He has given you his word. You hurry to perform those commandments. If you love Yeshua, you don't let a commandment go sour. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Don't let them go sour on you. What did his brother James say? Don't just be a, a hearer. Hearing means doing. If, if you're just hearing, but you're not acting upon it, you're not really hearing it because you're not doing it. You're just empty. You're that fence rider. You're that lukewarm for whom the fall feasts are especially important because it's pretty much at that point, last chance. So moving forward, we want to keep all this information on the table. And then we want to switch over and look at Revelation 14 and see now if we don't have a wonderful context for reading what we're reading in Revelation 14 in the history of a false messiah, in the prophecy of the Song of Songs, and also in the prophecy of Psalm 27 that says, he will lift us up. And pretty much it says, Rome will never be higher than us again. Rome will be judged. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.